Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Sally LePage. This episode is all about the next generation as we meet some of the rising stars in genetics. As you've probably heard in our last few episodes, Genetics Unzipped is running a listener survey to help inform the future direction of this podcast. The Genetics Society has supported the show for the last five years, but it's now having to make some difficult decisions, including whether to scale it back or seek funding support from sponsors. The Genetics Society would love to hear your thoughts to help them make those choices. So please go to geneticsunzipped.com forward slash survey or follow the link in the show notes and fill out our short questionnaire telling us what you like and don't like about the podcast and your thoughts on future changes. It'll only take you a few minutes and at the end of it you can enter a prize draw to win a signed copy of Kat's book Rebel Cell Cancer Evolution and the Science of Life. We'll be closing the survey at the end of January so if you're listening to this podcast when it comes out you've only got a week to tell us your thoughts or forever hold your peace. Kat will be back at the end of the show with a big update about the future of Genetics Unzipped but The long and short of it is that this may be our final episode for some time. So since you might not hear from us for a little while, we wanted to look ahead into the future for what we are calling our next generation sequence. That is, a sequence of interviews with the next generation of geneticists who have won Genetic Society Awards for their research. Yes, we are very proud of that pun. To start us off, we're taking a trip to the Atlantic Islands of Bermuda, where Manchester Metropolitan and Chester Zoo PhD student Owen Greenwood spent the summer working with Bermuda skinks, all thanks to his 2023 Heredity Fieldwork grant funded by the Genetics Society. Bermuda skinks are tiny lizards found only on Bermuda. Once abundant across the islands, they're now critically endangered. The skinks used to live pretty much across the islands entirely. So it used to be covered in cedars, which would have fairly minimal undergrowth. So the thinking is that the skinks were quite happy moving around in that area. So humans colonised Bermuda in the early 1600s. Unfortunately, with humans, rats were also introduced basically as soon as we landed. And rats predate the skinks as well. And so that's one pressure. Humans building things is another pressure so that wipes out a lot of their habitat so there no longer is cedar forest the predominant land cover is unfortunately mostly grass and housing nowadays now there's cats on the islands as well which also predate them so they're under a lot of population pressure so we think there's around five thousand left but that's like the upper end of the estimate so tell me what you were doing on your fieldwork project presumably you got to go to bermuda And you had to catch a bunch of skinks? Yes, I was in Bermuda from June to August in 2023. Thanks to the Heredity Field Grant, I was able to take a field assistant with me. So we were staying on one island called Nonsuch Island, which is an area that they're trying to conserve as much of the native species as possible. Because as you can imagine, the same with all islands, invasive species are a real problem over there. 
So we were staying on Nonsuch and we were setting pitfall traps, big jars that we were baiting to attract the skinks into. So we do this from around eight in the morning and bait them for five to six hours. We'd check the traps at least hourly. Basically, as you might guess, we knew it gets quite hot. And so with them being in the traps, we didn't want to leave them for any longer because otherwise they might get heat stress. Because these are the kind of pitfall traps where you're trying to catch them alive, not the kind of pitfall traps where you've put some like poison or beer for those that might have tried to catch slugs in their garden before. Oh, yeah, exactly. We want to, we definitely want to keep them alive because uh, it, <laughs> it would somewhat defeat the point to collect their genetics of ones that are no longer in the population. But yeah, once we caught them in the trap, we would take them out we would take a mouth swab to scrape off cheek cells or buccal cells, which we then have brought back with us to the UK to extract DNA from, which is what's going to allow us to do the genetics work. So what we do is we'd set the traps in the morning and then each of us would be responsible for checking a certain section of the traps and then bringing them back to our sort of processing station where we do the swabbing and taking biometric measurements and checking to see if they were tagged already and if not putting pit tags in them which is basically like think of it as like a barcode reader so you can scan the skink and if it's been tagged it comes up with a number to tell you which individual it is so you know when you swabbed it before what its measurements were and so on and yeah the idea is if we recapture them we can tell we've recaptured them so it gives us a much more accurate idea of how big their population sizes are how many did you collect in total a few hundred a few dozen so we caught 140 total, of which there were around 120 that were unique. And you've got cheek swabs from all of them, presumably to collect their DNA. What are you going to do with that DNA? So, yeah, we took swabs from all of them. There was one we didn't because we caught a hatchling and it was... The entire skink was probably the same size as the head of the swab. Definitely the cutest skink I saw out there. But with the buccal swabs, we've got, well, a few aims, basically. Broadly speaking, we want to do population genetics. So we want to get an idea of how healthy the skink populations are. So generally speaking, the more heterozygous a species is, the more genetically healthy it is. And what we want to do is see whether... A, whether the populations are genetically healthy because a lot of them are fairly small and all of them are very isolated from each other. So there's not a huge amount of gene flow. In fact, I'd probably go as far as to say there's, for all intents and purposes, none between the vast majority of sites. And B, we want to see whether the level of heterozygosity correlates with actual fitness of the individuals to see whether body mass index differs between populations in the same way that heterozygosity does. So that's one of the questions we're trying to answer. We also want to look at just the population structure of the Bermuda skink. So we surveyed 10 different locations and Bermuda's made up of two or three big islands and then a lot of smaller islands. And so many of the persisting skink populations are found on the smaller islands where people aren't living. So what we want to do is see just how much genetic variability there is in the species as a whole, but also to see whether either reintroduction or relocation would be a potential option for the conservation of the species. So 
Chester Zoo have been carrying out a captive breeding program for the skinks for just over a decade, and they've been very successful. They've bred a lot of skinks, but the population of individuals that they used to start the breeding program in the first place all came from one particular island. So what we want to do in the interest of conservation is see whether that island is genetically similar enough to the other sites that we could use individuals from this population to support the existing populations elsewhere. So now it sounds like you're going into kind of the hardcore genetics part of your PhD. You've done all the fun experimental work in the field and now you're heading back to the lab. You started off from an ecology and conservation point of view. Is this kind of what you expected a career in genetics to be like? Honestly, I never expected to get as much field work as I did through genetics. I kind of, because most of my exposure to it has either been through the medical lab I worked in or when I was at University of Exeter, there are some amazing genetic researchers there. A lot of them work on invertebrates though, and so they breed them up in the labs and then do all their work in the lab. So I'd kind of always envisaged it just in the lab throughout. So the fact I had the opportunity to go out into the field for three months has been fantastic. And for me anyways, helped me to sort of ground what I'm now going to be doing in the lab into like the real world. Having been to Bermuda and experienced it all, it's given me a much better appreciation of like what we might actually be able to do with the output of it. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find out more information about this episode on our website, geneticsunzipped.com, or come and say hello to us over on X at Genetics Unzip. Don't forget to fill out our listener survey at geneticsunzip.com forward slash survey before the 31st of January. Plus, there's a bunch of grants coming up at the Genetics Society this month. Firstly, the deadline for the next round of Junior Scientist Conference grants is on February the 1st. Grants of up to £750 are available to Genetic Society Junior Scientist members to attend conferences in the area of genetics. Also on the 1st of February is the deadline for the next Heredity Fieldwork grant. That's the very same grant that allowed our guest Owen to travel to Bermuda last summer for his PhD project. Awards of up to £2,000 can cover travel and accommodation costs associated with a field-based genetic research project. The 15th of February is the deadline for the next Genetic Society quarterly training grant aimed at enabling members to attend short training courses or a collaborative visit to another laboratory to train in specific genetic or genomic techniques. And finally, you have until February the 26th to sign up for this year's Communicating Your Science Workshop held at Chichley Hall on the 22nd to 24th of April 2024. The workshop will be held by Royal Institution Christmas Lecturer Professor Alison Woolard, Radio 4 presenter and comedian Helen Keane, and a bunch of us from the first Create the Media team, including yours truly. 
So come and develop your communication skills with us. We promise it'll be a really fun few days and the Genetic Society will cover travel, accommodation and meals for successful applicants. We're now moving from a trip to Bermuda to a trip to the past. Dr Ponta Skoglund leads the Ancient Genomics Laboratory at the Francis Crick Institute in London. He is the winner of this year's Balfour Lecture, a Genetic Society Award celebrating contributions to genetics from an outstanding young investigator. The scientific equivalent of the BAFTA's Rising Star Award. His research explores how ancient DNA can unlock the secrets of human evolution, disease and population migration in prehistory. And he's looked at everything from the domestication of dogs to plagues in the Middle Ages. So I wanted to know which question he's most excited to study. It changes with, uh, you know, every week or something like that. So if I was going to pick something this week, I think soon we will be able to look at evolution in the genetics of human traits, including diseases, in quite fine scale, you know, including in the past sort of one or two thousand years, which is a period, of course, where societies became more complex, people lived in denser communities, more infectious disease. So it will be really interesting to understand our genes adapting um, in terms of immunity to disease, I think will be very cool. And in our lab, we also study ancient pathogen DNA, bacteria and viruses who, of course, evolved themselves. People listening to this will be, of course, have followed COVID. Everyone was sort of tracking the different variants, lineages and strains that would arose in real time. But that's something that's only been possible due to genomic technology to do in the sort of past very few decades, like maybe 20, 30 years. So how do these bugs evolve, you know, on short timescales within human populations during these kind of outbreaks? Perhaps we can use ancient DNA to understand that in a better way. So I noticed you were studying Yersinia pestis, Black Death, your famous fleas on the backs of rats killing, what was it, 25% of Europe or something crazy like that? Yeah, I think it's even more. I mean, they don't know exactly, but yeah, probably at least 40%. Yeah. So what kind of questions do you ask? Because you mentioned the link to COVID and there we're really like, week by week, month by month, what are the new traits that are coming out? How are they more virulent? How are the viruses changing to be better at being infectious? Are you able to make that fine scale predictions about the Black Death from the 14, 15, 1600s? What sort of questions are you asking? Is it how fast does it evolve? Is it what does it evolve into? Is it all of them? Yeah, that's great questions. Viruses do tend to evolve quite a bit quicker than bacteria such as Yersinia pestis. People have looked at this in the past, at the Black Death. You know, why was it that so many people died? So not us, but another group a few years ago got the first Black Death Yersinia pestis genomes. And then they compared it to present-day Yersinia pestis that's still around in a few places in the world. And they couldn't really see any major difference in its genes that, you know, would have changed them to be more virulent. I think scientific view currently is that even the Black Death might not have been genetically different itself. Maybe people were more immunosuppressed at the time. They were sort of living less healthy lives, which resulted in this, I mean, massive death rate in Europe. And you mentioned you're not only looking at the evolution of the ancient diseases themselves, but how human genomes have evolved in response to them. And I know there's plenty of rumours because 
the plagues and the black deaths of the Middle Ages caused so much of an evolutionary selection pressure that that's why we see various resistance genes in European populations as well. Are those the sort of questions that you're looking at? Exactly, yeah. That's absolutely one of the main hypotheses. But we still have quite, you know, very little human DNA data from this time period. But that's going to build up from our group and from multiple other groups that are sort of increasing this data set to understand this more near-time evolution. And how do you study that? Do you just look at a load of genomes from before the disease, a load of genomes from after the disease and kind of do a spot the difference? Yeah, basically like that. Or even better, you go in and have a time series of genomes over a longer time period. And you can see, well, does evolution seem to speed up at particular times? You know, do that match with anything that we know about, maybe epidemics such as the Black Death? Then we look at millions of different places in our genome and, you know, they sort of form millions of hypotheses that we can test. Were they undergoing natural selection or not? Uh, do they stick out compared to the rest of the genome? I think ancient genomics is the area of genetics that really highlights the importance of technology and technological advances. Because you just mentioned that you're sequencing billions of fragments already. Where do you kind of see the future going? Like, what big technology is on the horizon or if you could in invent a new technology that would really revolutionize your field what would it do actually your question i think is relevant to one thing that we're also interested in which is ancient proteins so ancient protein sequencing is if you will or determination of ancient protein sequences is a frontier that could really make a big difference and the reason for that is that dna degrades much quicker than proteins. And indeed, there's virtually no chance we can get DNA from some of the most fascinating points in time and place uh, for the evolution of our species, Homo sapiens. Many of these questions are about you know, the past million years and in warm places like Africa, where DNA degrades really quite quickly. Proteins, there's a chance that they are preserved. And if we can improve the techniques in the retrieval of them so that we can get enough of them to have statistical power to, you know, sort of map our ancestry back in time to different parts of Africa and different other parts of the world, different human species, that would be a massive leap forward. So you've got the same technical problems now with proteins that DNA had 20 years ago. Of If I gave you a large enough, pure enough sample, you'd be fine. But the trouble is getting a large, pure sample of the protein. There's just so little of it and it's degraded. Yeah, exactly. And so for me personally, that's what makes it so exciting. It's like rolling time back to where we were uh, when I started in ancient DNA, where people were like, maybe this is, we don't really know if this is going to be a thing, ancient genomics at all. It sounds like it's a really interdisciplinary group that you've got going on then at the Crick. Is it more interdisciplinary than most genetics groups, would you say, working with this older stuff? Or is it just a different kind and you don't hear as much about it? I mean, definitely it's very interdisciplinary. You know, it's one one foot in archaeology and one foot in biology, in, in a sense. So yeah, in our group, we have people who are archaeologists and mathematicians who work with the data, molecular biologists, forensic scientists who retrieve the DNA, evolutionary biologists. And that's, you know, what makes it so fun to me, learning things from uh, different angles every day. I might be reading a different type of article uh, to try to learn new things. 
And you recently won the Balfour Lecture Prize from the Genetic Society celebrating early career researchers. Congratulations, first of all. What would you say is the difference then in that step up from being a a PhD student within a group to becoming the group leader yourself? Like, What are the different skills you have to have? Yeah, well, the way science works, right, you kind of trained and selected to become a principal investigator quite often on sort of, uh, yeah, your technical skills, you know, not necessarily due to your skills in leadership or management or interpersonal skills. Of course, they're important in research, but it's a very much a shift in focus. And so, yeah, what happens is you spend a few years being a PhD student, a few years being a postdoc, and you've been really trained to drive your own research uh, using technical skills, in my case, coding, computational work. And by the way, you don't have to be a a wizard. I basically didn't know any coding until I started my PhD. So I I sort of learned it on the job. Uh, But when you become a PI, principal investigator, the focus shifts to making sure that other people have the chance to be trained to do those things. So it is a general sort of issue that people aren't necessarily trained for that principal investigator role. But having that new challenge is very exciting. I mean, just very rewarding seeing people grow in their skills, uh, develop their careers. That's really rewarding. But yeah, it's definitely something to, I think, in science, think about more how to prepare people for that um, people-focused role. What advice would you give to people who are maybe doing their GCSEs in secondary school, starting university, if they're thinking that maybe this is an avenue they want to go down? You know, sometimes we try to say that science is fun and, uh, you know, we're passionate about science. And that's one way of looking at it. I mean, for me, I like it because it's inspiring and it's uh, problem solving. Yeah, you know, I can't resist getting into new questions. That's kind of what is exciting. And so with this ancient DNA approach, recently even ancient proteins, there's so many things about the human past and evolution that you can address. You know, I remember sitting in university in undergrad class, there was a a lecture about human origins. And I remember I was like, I should really be savoring this. You know, this is really exciting. You know, I probably never hear about uh, human origins as part of what I should be doing daily again. And, you know, I sort of repeatedly have had this feeling when I've done master's projects in this topic and my PhD and my postdoc. And even now I sort of feel like I should savor it because it's really inspiring. And uh, yeah, it's really a sort of a privilege to be able to work with it. There are many roads into a genetics career and so many ways to be a geneticist. Our final guest today is yet another example of someone making great science happen outside of a solely academic role. In 2022, Dr. Louisa Zolkiewski was awarded the inaugural Bruce Cutternack Prize from the Genetic Society for an outstanding PhD thesis related to the use of non-human in vivo animal models. Following her PhD, Louisa decided to apply her skills and genetics knowledge in an industry position, working in genetic toxicology. So genetic toxicology is looking at substances and drugs and compounds going to market and seeing whether or not they are safe at a genetic level. So are they toxic to your DNA and your cells in the body? Are they safe? Does something increase your risk of getting mutations that might then lead to cancer? So it's not 
drugs that are specific to genetic conditions. It's no. any drug. Any drug. It could be things like plastics in packaging or it could be things like chemicals that they use in agriculture. So kind of things you know, like pesticides and herbicides. And if that's going on your food, is that then safe? Food additives or things that are quite common at the moment that people might be looking at whether they're safe or not are kind of like herbal supplements and that sort of thing. So anything and everything can be potentially toxic, I suppose. So we're kind of testing these. So you're working within industry at the moment. Are you working for a, one of the big, massive companies or were you working for a small company? Working for a small company. So it's called a CRO. So it's a contract research organization. So we work on a client basis. So we have clients that come to us with a product and they want it testing. We do the testing and then we send back the results to them and we kind of discuss what it means and help them prepare it and get it ready to submit to people like the FDA and the UK government who then kind of make the final decision to say whether something is safe or not. Because one of the things I always heard from people when I was doing my PhD, or should I go into industry, should I continue in academia, particularly if they're going into these big companies, is you're such a tiny cog within this massive chain that you're almost like a, a machine, you're doing the same task day in, day out. But it sounds like what you're doing is quite varied. Yes. And I think because it's a contract research organisation, it is on the smaller side. I think that very much helps. It's partly why I chose to go into a smaller company rather than a bigger company, because I've heard exactly the same thing. You, you get lost in the system and you know you kind of want to be left to your own devices a little bit. Having done a PhD, you kind of feel like, you know, to some extent, you know what you're doing and you know that if someone gives you a task, you can kind of go away and do it. But equally, you don't want to be so lost that if you want help or you want to talk to someone, you can't. And what is the structure like? Who are you working with? Do you have like lab groups that are all working on the same problem? I have no idea of what it looks like. Yeah, so we've got several different lab groups. So we generally speaking work as a team based on one assay. So day to day, I kind of work with the same group of eight people. We do in vivo testing. So we're looking at kind of the late stage testing where companies may have had a couple of tests done in bacteria and in cells and it might not be quite obvious what's going on. So they then move into a model system that's more similar to humans. And we're trying to get a better understanding of whether or not the genetic mutations are actually occurring. And if they are occurring, does that actually mean that the mutations are happening at a much higher rate than you would expect and are therefore potentially harmful? Does working at industry match up to your expectations and preconceptions that you had before you joined? Yes and no. I think, yes, in that there is a lot more freedom kind of day to day to plan your work. You know, you're not working by yourself. So there's a whole team of people working towards one common goal, which is really nice. You don't feel isolated in the same way that you do in your PhD. In terms of no, it's a lot more structured, I think, than I realized. Certainly in this industry, in the kind of toxicology testing and safety, there's it's very, very rigid and it's getting used to a very different way of working is what I'd say. I hadn't realised how much of a difference in way of working it was going to be. You mentioned your PhD. So you actually won an award, a Bruce Katanak Prize for Best PhD Thesis on Non-Human Model Organisms. What was your thesis on and what was your non-human model organism? So the non-human model organism was mouse. 
my PhD was looking at common DNA variations and um, which are associated with our fat distribution and our body shape. So when people talk about being apple shaped or pear shaped, being apple shaped is generally considered to be associated with a higher risk for having things like type 2 diabetes and heart disease. And actually, in some cases, you know, even things like cancer, you have a slightly increased risk if you carry more of your fat around your kind of abdominal area and around your organs. So we were very much looking at genome-wide association study data. So it's sort of like a survey. They look at whether you've got type 2 diabetes or heart conditions, or it can be any disease. They measure things like your height, your weight, your BMI. They collect loads of kind of base information, whether you smoke, whether you don't smoke. And what they then do is a genome-wide association study is where they correlate your DNA code with your kind of outward phenotype. So what you look like, what you weigh, whether you smoke, whether you don't smoke, what sort of diseases you might have. And then they combine it and say, well, these specific codes of DNA in this region, in this gene, are significantly associated with this outcome. I mean, and typically in a genome-wide association study, you might have hundreds of thousands of potential DNA variations that are associated with an outcome. So for my project, we were looking at a region of DNA that was called the TBX15 Wars 2 locus. So it's got three genes in it. Oh, so snappy. I love it. (laughs) It's got three genes in it. And in those three genes, in that region, so some of them are in the bit of DNA that specifically reads for the genes, and some of it is in the regulatory bits of DNA. And in total, we were looking at 60 variants, but my project specifically was looking at two variants that lie in the TBX15 gene itself. And so what we were able to do, because my PhD was linked with the Mary Lyon Center, is they generated two mouse models that had those specific human DNA variations in them. And we were then able to look at the mice and their whole body phenotype and whether or not they had any differences in their fat mass. You know, so did they have more or less fat overall? Did they have their fat mass distributed across different parts of the body? So that was the basis of my PhD. So are there genes that affect how much of a beer belly you've got, where your fat is located in your body? Yes, I think at the moment there's no one single gene that regulates it. I think what's quite obvious from the GWAS studies is that there's lots of different DNA variations that improve your susceptibility for getting a a beer belly when combined with your diet, your exercise, your kind of general environmental factors that you're exposed to. I think there's a genetic predisposition to a certain body type, but that's then obviously exacerbated by our current kind of modern human lifestyles. Like everything in genetics, the answer is it's complicated. Yes, yes, (laughs) definitely. So how do you then go from studying this within your PhD, within an academic setting, what made you think, hmm, I want to make that leap into a slightly different way of approaching science and I want to go into an industry setting instead? One of my big deciding factors when I came out of my PhD was I knew I wanted to have that tangible outcome to the work that I was doing. I loved academic research. I loved kind of doing science. But for me, it got quite hard towards the end doing research without there really being 
a kind of solid definitive, this is why we're doing it and this will be the true impact of doing the work. Whereas now, in, and particularly in the field that I'm in, in industry, and in that we're looking at drug safety testing, but it obviously then links back to the genetics, I kind of feel like I've got the best of both worlds. So I'm still very much focused on genes and genetics, which is what I spent a lot of my academic career doing. But with that added benefit of, okay, well, I can see the reason why we're doing this work. What piece of advice would you give to someone thinking about going into your field? My biggest piece of advice for someone that wants to come into the field would be to go out and contact local companies that are in your field of interest. Not necessarily in your field of interest if you haven't got that option, but any kind of industrial company and just get in contact and see if they're willing to kind of host you for a couple of days or a week during your summer holidays and just try and get a feel for what it's like day to day in the kind of company, what they, how the science works because it might be very different to what you've experienced before, particularly through school. And it gives you an opportunity to talk to people and find out their different routes, because that's one of the things I've learned working here and kind of during my PhD is that people have very different routes through their scientific careers, more so than I ever realized when I was at school. I think it's really important to see that there isn't just one set way of doing something in science. I think there's a lot more variety and kind of a lot more options open to you than people might realize. So we've got a degree apprentice. So she's come straight from her A-levels. She's working four days a week in the company in the lab. And then she spends one day a week going to university and doing kind of degree and learning the, the basic science to everything that underpins what we do here. But then we've equally got people that have gone through undergraduate degrees, master's degrees, PhDs, and kind of a whole host of in-between so there really is no no one route and don't be afraid to kind of explore all the options available to you. That's all for now. Thanks to Owen Greenwood, Dr. Pontus Skoogland and Dr. Louisa Zolkiewski. Before I sign off, here is a quick message from Kat Arney about what's happening next for the podcast. Over to you, Kat. After five years of fortnightly podcasts and more brilliant guests and stories than I can count, we have some news to share. As you should know by now, Genetics Unzipped is funded by the Genetics Society, and in this current financial climate, they're having to make some difficult decisions. This means that, for now, the podcast is going on hiatus. We're not sure if or when we'll return, but we're doing our best to find additional financial support or corporate sponsorship to get us back on the air and back in your ears as soon as possible. So, if you or anyone you know works for an organisation that wants to reach our audience of many thousands of listeners all over the world who love genetics, around half of whom work in a genetics or health-related field, then please do drop us a line at podcast at geneticsunzipped.com. For myself and all the team at First Create the Media, this podcast is one of our favourite things we do, and we are gutted to have to put it on hold. Thank you for listening. Whether you've been there since the early days or are only just getting into it, in which case, oh boy, have you got some treats waiting for you in our back catalogue. And I do hope we'll be back bringing the best news and stories from the world of genetics to you again very soon. 
Thanks, Kat. And it's why the listener survey is so valuable to us, because it helps us approach potential sponsors and make sure that we spend what funding we have making episodes you enjoy listening to. So please, if you have five or ten minutes to spare before the end of January, go to geneticsunzipped.com forward slash survey and let us know what you think. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on X at Genetics Unzip, and please do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or review us on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference, particularly at this time for the podcast, and it helps more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written, presented and produced by me, Sally LePage. It's a first Create the Media production for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. The executive producer is Kat Arney. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard. The logo was designed by James Mayle and audio production was by Emma Werner. Thank you for listening. And until next time, and I really hope there is a next time, goodbye. <laughs>